Hey We're everybody, good. welcome to the Growing With Fishes podcast. Um, I'm Steve, um, and this is uh, the Growing With Fishes podcast. We do this show every week, uh, trying to educate everybody on sustainable cannabis growing. Um, we have uh, Tommy with us. Hey there, everybody. Uh, glad to be back this week. Got some uh, pretty exciting things we're working on. I'm going to be uh, taking a trip down to Del Mar, see my sweetheart, which is always exciting for me. And uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to be on the show here, and uh, hopefully I can, I don't know if I'll catch everybody next week, I might be on the road, but uh, glad we're here, and I know we got an exciting show today. we got Roger. How y'all doing? I'm Roger. I'm from, I run I Love Growing Marijuana.com, and it's good to be here tonight, as usual. And uh, we got a great guest for y'all tonight. You're going to really enjoy it. we got uh, Mr. Green Jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Try to keep up, you guys. Hey. Uh, what's up, everybody? It's the Green Jeans, the original, except no substitutes. Really excited to be here. This is a great crew. <laughs> we got a uh, fish ganja guy. Yeah. <laughs> we got um, uh, brain grow. Evening, everybody. Welcome to tonight's show. We got uh, Dutch Blooms. Hey, guys. Stoked to be on again and uh, super stoked to hear from Dr. Efren. Hey, Josh. <laughs> What's up, buddy? <laughs> um, and then we have uh, Dr. Efren with us this week. Um, he's a mycorrhizal expert, and uh, I had a chance to listen to his talk when I was up at the uh, Science and Regenerative Organic Cannabis Conference up in Portland. And um, he's going to be at the uh, along with with me and uh, and Josh up at the one here in Humboldt. On um, what's the exact dates, Josh? Uh, the exact dates for the conference are the sixteenth through the eighteenth, and then we're doing a, a microscope class with uh, Dr. Ingham, Dr. Elaine Ingham, on the fourteenth and fifteenth. So big week for us next week. Oh yeah. And uh, so thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Efron, for coming on. Uh, why don't you tell uh, everybody a little bit about what you do and um, what mycorrhizae are? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was good to meet you there, Steve. Um, thank you for the invitation to be here. Well, it's a big question. Um, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that we... We tend to use the term mycorrhizae pretty loosely, but I keep thinking of my my major professor, you know, that keeps correcting us. And so he says, okay, so you don't sell mycorrhizae because mycorrhizae by definition is the association between a fungal, you know, fungal that creates this symbiosis, this mutualism with the plant plant roots um, and so mycorrhizae is the actual association as the bridge is the is the is that structure that is interfaced with the plant you know between the fungus and the plant and so what we actually place in our substrates is mycorrhizal fungal spores 
So spore is sort of like an extension of the fungi, you know, the reproductive structure. And so we apply mycorrhizal fungal spores or mycorrhizal fungi. After that spore germinates and creates a tube, which is called a hyphae and then mycelia. And that mycelia to actually keep going and growing needs sugars needs energy so they connect to the roots so they can get the sugars from the roots you know which are which are formed by the plant so that's kind of a a quick a quick uh, definition of you know what mycorrhizae is and what mycorrhizal fungi is not 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 all fungi can do that you know as i say in my talk you know any fungi we can place them in one of the three categories, and no matter what the fungi are, one is the the decomposers, which are, are very well known, and we we usually probably see them and step on them and eat them and touch them pretty much every day. You know, those are the ones that you know decompose organic matter already formed by the plant most of the time. Um, and then you got the parasites that they go after living tissues and causing, you know, diseases. Those are the pathogens. And the rest of them will be the mycorrhizal fungi, the ones that need the energy from the living plant. And there's a benefit between them. You know, the plant gets nutrients that they cannot absorb by themselves. And the, and the fungus gets the carbon the carbohydrates that they cannot make. That's why they're not plants. They're not photosynthetic. And so any fungi, you can place them in those three categories. Most of the ones you find on, on compost teas are decomposers, you know, and breaking down organic matter. So um, microroots, well, microroots, uh, I started uh, back in 2002. And basically, it was sort of like, um, you know, working at the Oregon State University and the, and the, the forest science department, um, you know, I was doing a lot of mycorrhizae assessments for research for my own and fungal identification, you know, forest fungi and such. But you, I can tell, I, I, I was involved with the, you know, helping a couple companies to start their business because I was just you know, friends of them and um, but and I, and I start they started sending me stuff to me because there was no one that could do assessments you know colonization does the fungus actually working you know what we apply in is actually working because one thing is you apply it and you apply all kinds of different things, you know, substrates, nutrients, teas, and all kinds of stuff, bacteria. And then you say, um, well, it's working. But if we stop there for a second, it says, well, how do you know which one is the one that's working? You know, was it the bacteria or was it the substrate? Whatever you did, what? Did you measure that it gave you the answer that, that you are blaming for the effect? And so that's the key part because we want to try as many things 
all at once. And we don't have a control uh, or we don't set up control and, or we measure the wrong parameter on the plant. And so it's a little loose. And, you know, from the science background, uh, you want to be careful because people will follow you. You know, if you got a if you got a strong followers, and then they follow you, and they did that. But you know, science is pretty objective. You know, it does it or does it not work? Did I measure the right thing? And so, based on that, um, people wanted to test us. So I start getting a, a bunch of samples and work and. I would do it out on the side and then do it at home. And pretty soon uh, I was making more money doing that than actually doing research <laughs> at the university. And I said, well, maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe this is a, this is a business and see science funding was getting drier and drier. And, and uh, with all this administration back in the Bush area, um, the, the, Pretty much the funding starting to you know reduce, and I said I, I I might be able to do something along these lines, you know, out of out of the comfort of my home, and so I start doing that, and just word of mouth, I keep getting more work and more work and more work, and and I said, well, I guess I guess this is my niche, you know, I, I love doing this, you know, I. The mycorrhizae thing, I, I learned it when I was doing my dissertation, um, and it was basically I had to assess mycorrhizae colonization on pretty much any plant, you know, on a glacier forefront in the Washington Cascades. So I could I could determine, you know, arbuscular mycorrhizae, ectomycorrhizae, ericoid mycorrhizae, and so I said, well, I. I guess I I can detect all these kinds, and uh, so that would be the the core of my work. And I was a little diverse. I was doing mycophagy studies, you know, small mammals. You know, they eat mushrooms, and you know, usually for science, you know, there's no clients in the industry, you know, to do to look at poops, you know, under the microscope and see if they eat fungus or truffles, which I did that for. A a few scientists uh, at that time, and I was doing fungal identification, mainly ectomycorrhizal fungi, you know, for the Forest Service, and I'm still doing it. You know, I'm, I'm, um, uh, one of my specialties early on was truffles. So, um, so I work with truffles from Mexico, and uh, you know, I travel a few countries in the world exploring forests and collecting truffles so mostly diversity you know and not just the edible ones but any any truffle any below ground fungus that grows on the ground associated with trees and so you know here at oregon state we had the world expert on truffles in the world you know jim trappy and um, so he was my major professor and so we travel many places, you know, collecting truffles and, and having fun because, you know, work was fun. And so, and he was a pioneer in the mycorrhizae research along with other people. And uh, I had the privilege that Oregon State in those days, you know, in the 80s and 90s, 
was kind of the uh, the mecca of mycorrhizal research. And because all the scientists that were there, you know, at some point, Corvallis had a, about 60 mycologists in town, <laughs> you know. And I and I did and I did that count because one time we went to the bar after five and I said uh, they call this symposia and all of a sudden pretty much every table where my college is is just talking fungus you know fungi and I start counting them and I said holy moly how can you ever put sixty people living in one town that work with fungi <laughs> you know from from you know microscopic fungi to mycorrhizal fungi pathologists and so on and you know we know each other and so with that in with because of that we get a lot of scientists visiting town stopping at the lab and so you get to meet a lot of these guys you know they're doing all this research all over the world you know from sweden england australia i mean latin america you name it everybody was stopping by here and you know and working and volunteering and cooperating and writing papers and stuff and so and then unfortunately the lab disappeared you know the funding got shut down people retire and luckily by that time it was already 2007 so microroots was already established you know like Okay, well, I guess I'm on my own. And if I can make it in 2000, if if I if I made it in 2008, which I didn't know at that time, I think you remember we hit pretty pretty bad economy and the recession part in 2008. And at the end of the year, I said, "Wow, I made it." So I guess this is a sign that I can, if I made it in 2008, I can I can live on this thing, and you know. Uh, uh, one of my early clients was uh, Soil Food Web, you know, because they were established here with Delaine Ingham. And, um, and so, you know, she contacted me and or we connected somehow and I started doing mycorrhizae assessments for them. And, um, and so it was one of my early clients and, um, and then she sold the business and I'm still doing that for Air Force. And so... Uh, and then I get my own clients from all kinds of directions, you know. Um, I don't know if I can name them, but I got some pretty good big names from the NFL. Um, you know, they're doing sports, uh, the fields, you know, uh, the training fields or the, their fields, um, evaluating the mycorrhizal fungi on their turf, you know, what, what are they doing and how do they, what's what's their status? Um, and then I got associated with a, a, a guy from New York that does a sustainable um, landscape, urban landscape for the central, New York Central Park. And so he started asking me stuff, you know, selling me stuff and, you know, he liked my work and I like to get stuff done quickly because the quickly you get your job done, uh, the quickly you get pay, you know, I'm, I'm not on a salary, you know, I'm not a, like a steady income. So, uh, which is very risky in this business. You probably all know that, you know, paychecks don't come on the, on the 15th or the 30th. <laughs> What's a paycheck? <laughs> I got a checkbook. I write checks, but I don't ever get a paycheck. 
Yeah, I stopped, I stopped, I stopped getting them. On the 15 to the or, 30s if they come at all. Or a day off. You know? <laughs> exactly. So I work Saturday. You better know if you never get a day off. <laughs> you know, you know, I work Saturday, Sundays, or evenings. Um, so this guy started inviting me to, to big projects uh, like uh, the St. Louis State Park. You know, they did a big renovation in St. Louis. And so they apply micro. There, we, uh, back. I think we're back. Oh, okay, so we lost Doctor Efren. It wasn't me. I, I thought I might have froze up. Okay. Yeah, we he's lost back. Green he's back. too. He's coming back. Right yeah, so uh, we're doing That's the uh, good thing about Hangouts. It does function very well when you have to get back in. You just click a button. Yeah, we're doing the uh, the Expedia.com in Seattle, you know, turning over 20 acres of soil and following mycorrhizal fungal path um, because, and also the Obama Library in Chicago is another one we're doing. Um, and I don't know what else. They just keep coming, you know, at least two or three a year, new ones that I just don't know. So I have to Austin, Texas. So I'm all over the place, um, which brings to the point, and, and I let everybody, somebody else ask a question, brings the point to me. Are you still guys there? I think I, yeah, okay. uh, I'm still here. To yeah. me, to me, mycorrhizal fungi assessment evaluating them and their roots it, yeah, we're gi fine. it gives it gives you a a point that a lot of good things are happening in your soil or in your system by by the time you find a fungal a mycorrhizal fungal colonization thriving in your roots it had to go through a lot of things, a lot of filters, you know, this temperature, substrate, pH, nutrients. And so it's sort of like a, the climatic, a climatic success in, the, in your root system. And so if you see them at a nice level, it kind of gives you an assurance that your plant is doing well. If, 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 especially if you inoculate them. If you did inoculate them, well, don't expect to see much unless there were spores in that substrate by chance. Um, and, and so that's what I, what I, that's what I follow the path because, you know, most of the plants in the world are mycorrhizal associates. And, and so it gives you something to grab on, you know, to actually detect. And that's the difference with bacteria because bacteria, they're not easy to detect in the root system if they go inside, unless they're nitrogen-fixing bacteria where, where they create nodules. But if you apply free-living bacteria, there's no signs in the roots that you can see, oh yeah, they did their work. That, that's not how they work. It's either they're in big numbers in the substrate but there's no actual structure that you can measure in the roots. Um, so it's all 
cause effect that you can see if you got the right controls. But otherwise, th there's no other way. With the mycorrhizal fungi, you can actually see them inside the root system. And you know, and you know, you know, there's question about well, who said that one percent is better than thirty percent? Well, that's all we got. And if we go even further, we can question one species of mycorrhizal fungi can colonize ten percent, and another species B can colonize at a forty percent, but they're both efficient. And so what, what does that mean? That this species A can be just as efficient at a low colonization level than B at a high colonization level. We can, we can raise that question, which is very valid, but we have to determine what did you measure to see that, you know, to, to say that. Uh, so that, that's, that's an open question. Uh, and as I said on my talk, you know, when there's graphs and things, when they show arrows, you know, this arrow, this little organism influenced this organism and the soil food web, you know, arrows everywhere. That's very simplistic view. In reality, there's thousands or millions of arrows going everywhere. At every second or minute in time and space, because the ecosystems are so dynamic, you know, uh, the only thing we know is that temperature slows down those arrows or those interactions, as far as we know. But the ecosystem still is alive, you know. Um, and so, if we extrapolate some of this knowledge to um, a reductionist way of growing things, which is basically, you know, like when you grow vegetables in a small scale or or um, cannabis, it's a reductionist way of doing things because cannabis in the wild doesn't grow with all these nutrients, you know. It's an artificial environment that we're doing. And so since it is artificial, we basically we're trying to find the holy grail you know to mimic how this plant can grow more than expected because in reality you know if you put a wild plant cannabis doesn't know that it needs to produce a lot of thc or cbds or beautiful flowers and in 90 days <laughs> and so we're asking this plant to do magic you know to do miracles to our benefit because it's an economic you know thing that we're trying to do here and so it's we're always finding what is going to work the best for my strain um does it work with every strain it's always that question you know does every strain has the same needs as the others we i don't know i don't know anything about cannabis i have no idea how to grow cannabis but i can raise some questions says how does you know someone was mentioned lactobacillus you know okay you got one strain of lactobacillus and keep that in mind 
Does that strain work the same for every strain of cannabis? Does anybody know that answer? Has it even been tested? And did you, what did actually you measure to determine that answer, that question? And so that's just one thing. And if you're starting to pile up the dozens of bacterial species that people apply, dozens of mycorrhizal fungi that you, that you apply, um, are those strains that you use in your inocula, are they the same in every package that you buy that every company produces? No, they come from different generations, you know, maybe once, you know, one common mycorrhizal fungi out there is Glomus interradesis. Now it's called Rhizophagus interradesis. There are a lot of strains out there. Not a, not all the strains are the same. Uh, maybe one was isolated from citrus, the original strain, but others came from potatoes, or from bananas, or from peppers. Who knows from where? From corn. And so they carry the same name, but do they carry the same physiological traits every generation? Because they're cloning them. And so when does a clone lose, loses their physiological traits or powers? We don't know. And so it leaves a lot of questions, you know, science-based that it just makes you, and not skeptical, but, you know, the, the message I like to give to people is that there's no rules, you know, uh, things change, you know, the light, the, the watering, the type of water, the water quality, when do you water it, and on and on and on and on. And so it creates a very factorial experiments. And so do the, we do the best we can. Uh, and, and, and in science, when you do experiments, if you don't have the right controls or measure the right parameters, then you may producing, I don't want to call it fake science, but not, there may not be consistent results. And uh, so- I'll call it fake science. <laughs> no, no claim, claim your data, dude. That's, yeah, why I mean, you have it, that's why you have paper on the wall. Speak, speak it true. I mean, because like I'll watch people in their grows, they have one grow and then they change four parameters for the next grow. And I'm like, dude, how do you know what you did? You got to change one parameter. <laughs> and, and the thing is that most growers are not for science. They're to grow, you know, to grow, to get profit. Along the way, they find formulas or different things to do things to get things better, but they don't have time to do science because they're on a paycheck, paycheck, you know, or, or not paycheck, but profit, you know? And and so I'm wondering, and, I'm, and I think I heard there's a Cannabis Research Institute in Michigan or, or some university where actually doing all kinds of things, but I don't know what kind of a research they're doing or they have time, you know, to to actually test all these things, you know, because... If it's Mississippi, you know, they're really doing a great job. 
Yeah, is that Josh? Yeah, I'm yeah, being so, sarcastic. No, no, but I mean, um, it brings the mind to Josh because um, uh, Leighton, uh, I don't know if I should mention his name, <laughs> uh, but Josh. Yeah, no, go, go ahead, talk about it. Uh, Josh, uh, Josh um, um, is part of the, the what we're trying to do. And, it's, and again, this may not be a strict, trick science, but um, but we're trying we're trying to pinpoint something very basic, and then it's along this these lines. So the question was: Here's a cocktail of species of mycorrhizal fungal species. They're sold, and the question that came up was by by Leighton says, "Yes, but what species is they actually working?" You know, basic question. Is it a synergism between the five of them, or is this one each? You know, um, but which one is it? Is one, two, three, four, five, or the combination of of all of them? And so he convinced the producer to give them separate species instead of the cocktail. And so we apply it individually or Josh apply them. Um, I'll give all the credit to Josh. I'm just the, 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 uh, the sort of like the do it this way, do it that way. But so the credit is to Josh and Leighton. Um, and, and so they're, they're going to grow them separately and to see which one does best. But again, we weren't we weren't much concerned at this point of you know, the plants got better or bigger. We're more about did they actually colonize? And so unfortunately the plant had to be harvested earlier and we didn't give the chance to the mycorrhizal fungi to actually get in there and get established at you know enough time to, to do much much. And that that's a good point. I'm just gonna, you know. How long is that? That's like ninety days, is what you said. Yeah, yeah. I like I like ninety days to you know to hundred and twenty days, but a lot of times it's not possible because you need to harvest, and and so. But we have signs of two or three species, if I recall, that show colonization. And I say, whoa, that's that's a good start, and not just because of that. Here's here's the kick. The kick was that the substrates were high in phosphorus, really high, which is that's what people do, because I'm assuming cannabis like high phosphorus. And so the 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 paradigm was is or is that most mycorrhizal fungi do not like high phosphorus substrates or soils. They tend to reduce their populations because uh, they're not needed. That's what mycorrhizal fungi do. They, they secrete enzymes to break phosphorus down to simple forms that they can uptake them, you know, in the solution and, you know, be taken by the plant. And so when there's high levels of phosphorus, you know, the fungus is not needed. You know, the plant is taking it uh, as is and so that's the paradigm and so when we found colonization a little bit 
on high phosphorus level. I mean, I'm talking high, you know. Most, the rule of thumb is, is 20, 20 to 50 parts per million of phosphorus in the substrate. Because that's when the fungus actually works. It sucks it all in uh, when they're very little and it's more efficient. And so I said, whoa, this is a good, a good step. This is a good sign that there are strains that may be able to live on their high phosphorus content in the substrate. And this can be a breakthrough because, first of all, it breaks all the paradigms. Okay, there are strains that can actually grow. It's the matter of finding them. And I didn't know at, at first, this is, you know, that the substrate was high in phosphorus. It just, let's see what happens. Because if I knew naturally or instantly, I would say, well, there's no point of growing them if there's high phosphorus in the substrate. Let's not waste the time. But I'm glad they didn't tell me that because they did it anyway. <laughs> and so when I saw the, the results, I said, oh boy. This is a good thing. And so now we're trying to set up a, a, a bigger experiment, maybe a longer time to apply those, you know, species, maybe all of them again, or just selected ones and replicate this thing and have a nice control. And what would be the result of that? Would you, would you have, you know, you, you, they would tolerate a, a very high level of phosphorus and you would well, have that's, that's that's what we think and and if that's the case and then we can select that species or that mm -hmm. strain this is okay why don't we test this one i mean there are all kinds of ideas we can come up with after this okay this strain this strain from this producer is um we're gonna market somehow. This is okay, this strain. Why don't we compare the same species from a strain coming from a different source and test them both? And, and if one does better than the other one, I think we're getting closer to the answer. Yes, this strain does better than that strain, even though they're the same species at a high phosphorus levels in the substrate. On their the cannabis strain that Josh is using. We cannot blame, we cannot say that that will work for all the strains, see? Because it's very specific, to our question. You know, we gotta say, okay, what strain do you use, Josh? And now the question is, would it work on another strain of cannabis? Let's try, you know, and all of a sudden you need a bigger greenhouse and bigger this and bigger that, and Josh may not be able to do it because he needs to make money. <laughs> and it might not just be the phosphor, you know, there's... It could be other stuff, you know, yeah, but we're trying like to... The, the, we might be focusing on phosphor, just like, you know, for the longest time, we forgot about CBD in the plant because we were breeding to grow indoors clandestine, and we, we bred out the CBD without recognizing how valuable it is. And here we can find ourselves in a situation similarly where, yes, we're aware of phosphor, but these this colony, this this dance of life that we're trying to create in the soil 
can be turning on six other switches that we don't even know to ask the questions for yet. Well, let's not forget that also if it's a high concentration of phosphorus, there's a possibility that other minerals are being locked out or on the verge of being locked out too on the other side of the spectrum of availability when you come, you know, we're talking about making them molecules and, and, and the minerals available to the plant by breaking it down with the mycorrhizae or the fungi or whatever. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. So um, it's kind of exciting, you know, when when you sit around and start talking about all this, you know, interesting questions that um, they can be tested, and um, it, it, but again, you know, uh, I'm glad Josh is available to do this um, because, well. If we were to do it the right way, obviously it would require, you know, nice funding, uh, greenhouses, spare time, spare time, uh, consulting time, and all the money that goes along to set up this thing that could be huge because you need a lot of replication. And, and somebody to watch the plants and take care of all this stuff. It's, it's not cheap. It's not cheap, that's all I can say. Um, and, and most growers do not, do not have time for this because they need to grow their crops for profit. And research institutes, if whoever is the head of the research and it doesn't have this kinds of questions or, or they're not priority you know they'll be put aside you know um but you you can set up the same questions for pretty much anything that you apply to you know um as nutrient levels bacterias and but i mean again that's the issue with the cocktails of bacterias the same thing you, they sell you a dozen types of bacteria in it at a different levels, different colony forming units. And when you apply them, the question is, which one is doing the benefit? Okay. Or, what, or what benefit? What are we, we going to measure? Take the, take, take the same colony and add it to a couple different plants and a couple different substrates. And just because you have everything identified in the colony that you're adding doesn't mean they're all going to take up in the media the same way. You know, and one plant is going to give better sugars and another plant not, you know. And that's where replication comes into the picture, you know. And obviously, science-based, you got to bring a statistical analysis. You know, set up your hypotheses well. And before you even do anything, set up your experiment design. So when you're done, you know what you're going to measure, at what times, the same way every time, so it's all uniform. And at the end, you're gonna analyze those measurements and say, yes, this is significant based on the sample number, you know. Which brings another question or very typical <laughs> problem. 
and this goes for a lot of a lot of uh, commercial people and the people that sell stuff or you know sell your products um, you know clients wants to believe what they're selling you you know and um, they tell you well we did all these trials and all this stuff but the basic question uh, I, I tell people, my clients, that ask them immediately when they show you graphs and things. Ask them immediately, what is the sample number? Because if they're basing their data on one sample, or two samples, uh, you gotta be kidding me. That's not gonna fly. I mean, what is the sample number? And you, if you throw the no hypothesis with one sample, exactly. <laughs> you and before you ask for the sample number, ask them, what is the hypothesis? And they're like, what? What? What is hypothesis? Yeah, <laughs> that means they're not prepared. And says, so what's the sample number? What's the n on, hmm. on a statistical analysis? What's the n? What's n equals what? Don't tell me it's two, because <laughs> that leaves you nothing. You know, and what is the control? And wh what time of the year did you test them? Was it indoor, outside, the lights, you know? I mean, you name them and they're like, whoa, you start pedaling back and like, they're not prepared. That's and an excellent point. Yeah, such a great point. Because variation, you, you mentioned it, variation, it's always going to happen, and that's why statistical analysis—it's key to actually detect those little differences. When we can't—I mean, you—you you set up an experiment, only two factors: one thing and the control. You know that your question is: Does they get bigger? That's all you're going to know. That's all you care. Okay, that's that's a basic question: Are the plants bigger than the control? Okay, you. Maybe you don't need to measure anything. And if the control are stunted is short and the other treated were like two meters tall, you don't need a statistical analysis for that. The statistical analysis in my point of view is when the differences are subtle, when the measurements are so hidden in between the variation between the individuals that you measure. Uh, when the numbers are all over the place, you know, when maybe there's some outliers. And that's when you start to say, okay, I, I, I need some statistical analysis so I can say that it, it was a statistical, but it's not blown away statistical analysis, you know. Um, so it's some basic stuff. And, and, and I like my, 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 to educate my clients to, and actually, I, I, I learned this, you know, uh, on my PhD, because when you learn a PhD, uh, it's not going to be, um, uh, it's not about how much do you know. It's more about, do you know how to ask good questions? Because when you go to a PhD, they grill you. They, they make you go to the floor and say, forgive me, you know, uh, please give, you know, 
be nice to me. <laughs> I don't know nothing. They, they bring you to make you humble because we don't know nothing. We know so very little. We know a little bit of our topic, but after that, the main thing is learn how to ask good questions regardless of the topic. And, and not so much about skeptical, but just ask good questions, you know, because the more good questions you ask, the more those brains move. And if those brains are attached to the scientific method, it says be careful what be careful with the statements you make, you know, because mm -hmm. someone with the science background is gonna stop you, you know, cold. <laughs> and like, uh, experiments is that I I'm not you know accredited. I I help put my wife you know through through school and you know get her OBGYN stuff and. I come from a science family, but you know, I don't have paper on the wall myself. But what I do know from hanging around all these really smart people is that I acknowledge that I have been wrong about way more in my life than I've ever been right about. So when I'm approaching experimentation, I'm just assuming I'm wrong. And unless I can double, triple prove it, I'm still going to assume that I'm wrong. And a lot of people don't think like that, especially sales folks and whatever. Yeah. They just, they think it's the one thing and, and it, it, it cannot even be what they're saying. And they don't set up the experiments to prove themselves wrong. They set stuff up to make it look better for themselves and they throw out bad data. Mm. And that's not, I think it's important to establish a benchmark, which we were dancing all around, but you have to have it, a benchmark. And that's exactly what I was going to say. You, you're right. You touched that point. Both of you <laughs> touched that point because it's nothing wrong. It's not like I'm not saying if you don't follow the experimental design, uh, I don't believe you. No, that's not what I'm saying. If you said I did this, I did that. It may not be a scientific experiment, but I did this, this, and this, and I got these results. Based on what I did, this is what I found. And then I changed this. There's some weaknesses. There's some weaknesses on my, on my conclusions, but this is what I found out. What did I learn from this? That's a great point. When you say, I only had two samples. Okay. It's it's honest way to say I only do two samples, okay, but those two samples could mean a lot for the next step. But it's not a decisive conclusion. As long as you're being honest on what your results or your conclusions are based on, people will have all the information they they have they have in their hands, you know. Uh, which is, can, I mean, sorry, just to cut in, that's like the stage we're at, where we yes. did like a, a, a loose test. Yes. Um, and now, now we're going to do something a, a little bit more educated. Yes. And then if that like pushes us forward, then we'll take it forward to a real and scientific very, test. Exactly. And it's very likely if we get peer review on this, somebody would say, well, it would be nice if you did this. Of course, right. of course we do, but we're limited, you know, for funding, space, time. And you know all that, but as long as you're upfront 
on how you set your conclusions. It's all good, you know. But don't tell me that you don't know your sample number. <laughs> that means you have no clue what you're saying. <laughs> or you're saying or you're lying. Said my sample number was twenty, but it wasn't true. You know. So you guys are basically at the point where you've built a foundation to build on and go yes. forward and with that's, experimentation because you provide now you built a benchmark at least. Yes, it, it, usually that. usually science starts with speculation. Right. Yeah. We're gonna give in, it a in shot. This, in this case, it was late. Late and pushed the deal. You know. Yeah, and Leighton said, "You know, I got this," and and I said, "Leighton, um, you got a lot of questions, my friend. <laughs> and let's start one step at a time." And and I'm glad, you know, persistence, you know, push, and and it's very likely that you know this may grow and grow and grow, but you know, this is okay. What is the species? I mean, if you guys were sneakier already, you're probably thinking, so tell me what's the species, <laughs> regardless of the strain, <laughs> because that's the key. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't even know. I have no clue. I just, well, like my no question, I know the numbers. <laughs> you, were gonna, you said a while back, and then I, my internet cut off, so I don't know what happened. You were going to say, well, we're going to let you have a question. And one of my questions, was going to be so how does one get into creating their own strain of fungal mycorrhiza well um that's a good one uh that's something that is one of my what you would call it dreams but um you know there's there's a collection there's an institute in west virginia that that holds uh Pretty much all the strain, not not all strains, but a lot of species of mycorrhizae fungi, and, and therefore uh, research, commercial, and so on. They they sell you, you know, enough spores and so on. Um, the key is, well, I'm going to tell you the secret. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> I mean, the secret of the whole thing is is ecological, ecological thinking. Right. So where, let's say, you're looking for a species that is mycorrhizae that is, um, well, let's take back. You're looking for a plant species that is salt tolerant oh, in, cool. in, in the world. Where do you go and look for it? Mediterranean? Or marsh? Well, yeah, yeah. you go to, to the Caribbean, some beach. Right. And so you start with, there's no plant, there's no plants at all. You start walking from the water <laughs> towards, towards, the, towards the land, okay? So once you start seeing plants, LOL. what does that what does that tells you? That plant is subject to salt water. Most you of probably have no idea how happy you're making Roger right now. Yeah, because I want to grow pistachios, salt water. Yeah. Okay, so you 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 says okay, this plant 
is likely, is obviously in our front of our eyes, tolerant to salt. Now, let's go down below the ground. The question is, is this plant associated to mycorrhizal fungi or anything else, bacteria or whatever? And so you pull some plants, some individuals, you do the clearing and staining, or you send them to me, and I looked at them, and I saw, and I say, no, there's no colonization, and I'll keep my secret. I won't tell you what it is. <laughs> no, if I tell you, yes, they're colonized with mycorrhizal fungi, then right there, you have mycorrhizal fungi that is tolerant to salt levels or high salt levels. So you test you test the salinity on the soil and confirms that yes, this soil, their substrate is high in salts. And if you got fungus in there, that means this fungus is tolerant to salt. Let's take that fungus out and see if we can isolate it and propagate it and have a strain. We don't know the species name yet that is tolerant to salts. And that's how you start. And then you send them for identification or molecular or whatever. Now you have Thank strain you. that is tolerant to salts. So you do the same thing with any particular trait that you're looking for. What about drought? Tolerance to drought. Where would you go and find that? You go to the Mojave Desert or some very dry ecosystem and start looking for plants that they somehow survive. So would you area. then take that, take harvest that, that fungi and uh, propagate I, it and test I, it against I, uh, whatever, isolate it and test it against whatever yeah, you're trying to grow? Yeah, it probably would take a couple of years of you know isolation and testing and recolonizing it and, and, and and the thing is that you may, you, I'm sure it's not going to be only one thing. I'm sure there's going to be quite a few things, not just one species. Usually you find a, a collection of stuff. And so based on that, you know, and that's kind of a, what I want to do, what I want to do as micro roots, um, start isolating strains, um, not just more, not, not not only consulting or doing assessments, but um, also um, isolating and propagating for specific projects. And usually they're high-end projects that are interesting on their native stuff. You know, they don't want to bring commercial stuff. They want to bring native stuff. And so I think this is one of the, one of the new lines of stuff microroots is going to be doing in the next few years um it, it, you know trying to get local stuff you know uh, vineyards vineyards is another high-end crop you know that might be interested you know they want their local fungi um well can i where just... where would you go excuse me where would you go if you want to find Mycorrhizal fungi that are adapted to cannabis. 
that are already been growing with cannabis for thousands of years. Equatorial region? Afghanistan. Yeah, that too. Humboldt well, County. <laughs> well, will you go for where cannabis Island. plant? You will, you go where cannabis plants, you know. Grow natural. That, and hopefully, where they're indigenous. In other words, where they're indigenous. Yeah, and so basically you'll go to those areas and hopefully you get some strains that been growing with cannabis for a while, you know, and get them out, select them and and see if they if they perform well in high phosphorus because you're going to be growing them artificially. <laughs> you know. Well, now uh, would would you have wouldn't would you would you not have an issue with if you went somewhere like that bringing those plant species back to the United States? Um that's a good question. Go get them, but it's not always a question. Um, <laughs> but the 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 commercial inocula industry is already spreading species all over the world for many years, and um, luckily, these are not pathogens. Obviously, I would be I would be more careful bringing other stuff, not not the mycorrhizal fungi, but other stuff in the soil that oh. may, you know, like, you know, like pathogens or such. So in other words, if I was to do that, I would probably try to do the trapping over there and only bring, you know, certain things after a growth or two. So you're bringing clean things or a lot cleaner. That's what I was saying. So you need it all cleaned up. Oh, yeah, you want yeah. to not have any kind of the soil where you yeah. have those pathogens for the soil. Yeah, or, and, yeah. Or, may, or maybe just extract the spores and, um, and bring spore concentrates instead of just bringing all the soil. I mean, yeah, you have to, you have to think about it a little bit. Um, so you'd have to be there a while. Yeah, you just don't go and take a trip and up for the weekend. You'd have to yeah. go and establish. Um, and I probably, I probably let somebody else do the trip. I will probably won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the part, the portion I was gonna just try to, you know, direct back to is the ninety day inoculation, right? Yeah. yeah. And like the way um, ninety percent of us grow cannabis, that's just not a possible system. Yes, exactly. Uh, I heard. You know, um, unless you're growing in an indigenous soil or in a, a living bed or a no-till bed. Um, I mean, Steve, catch me if I'm wrong, but even like even your the way you grow aquaponically with um, uh, dual root zone, it's a cycle. Not It's not 90 days within the soil to actually colonize. Yeah, we don't. Uh, well, what we do, what we do is we do take that soil and, and um, reuse it. Um, we are experimenting currently with doing some no-till stuff. And then I guess on that note, do you want to talk a little bit about that, um, uh, Dr. Efron, about no-till and, and the whole, um, you know, you educated me a lot the one night on how um, the mycorrhizae pull the nutrients to the plants and why it's, you know, you, you would want to leave the root systems in and not want to take them away. Do you want to talk a little bit on that? I'd like to real say real quick, I'm actually doing that right now. I tried that. I'm trying it out right now. Same thing, and then I yield. Yeah. Well, let me know, Roger. I'm, I'd be happy to help out in any way. 
Yeah, yeah, I'll get your information, man. I'll, I'll, if uh, I'm, I'll, I'll talk to you about it later. Let's let. Well, I guess uh, Steve wants the doctor to answer him this question. So I just wanted to throw that out that I'm, I'm trying that. So what's the question? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, no-till and uh, leaving the old roots behind on the, uh, and how the mycorrhizal networks help, uh, you know, attract nutrients, especially in, in outdoor soil? You want, you guys want all the secrets. <laughs> so I gave a talk in Edmonton, Canada, um, last December, and the whole conference was basically no-till, and um, I was amazed how how many people are pushing for the no-till agriculture, you know, at a big big scale, uh, especially you know in Canada. Um, and I think for no-till, from the mycorrhizal point of view, it's it's the best thing you could do because. You're leaving. You're leaving, or there, you're leaving some root systems, or the below ground ecosystem, to keep it going, or or not being destroyed. You're slowing it down. And so, once colonization of the native community starts populating all those root systems. And you harvest your crop, and you do very little damage. You're just leaving the whole system below ground, pretty much, you know, not intact, but it's still there. And so when you seed it again, the mycorrhizal system is still going, and it's just ready to ready to kick in again. So you don't have to go through this spore cycle where the spores are have to be dormant and it takes a while to germinate them and colonize. And so from that point of view, the no-till is a perfect system to maintain the below ground community ready to go when what is needed, as opposed to destroy them and let them start all over again, you know, every time you you rip the soil. Um, one thing that I that I told them is some of this no-till they do cover crops, and to me, if they have a choice of selecting a cover crop, my suggestion was to use a cover crop that will be a mycorrhizal host. So we. Because that mycorrhizal host will keep the below ground mycorrhizal fungi active and alive and propagating while you're taking a nap, you know, it was taking a winter, you know, and so they'll be ready to go and you don't have to re inoculate again, in theory, as long as you check to see if things are kicking. But uh, so. That's another ecological observation uh, that if we think below, I mean, we, we always think, unfortunately, we always think about what's the above ground community. We rarely think of what could be happening below ground. 
we ignore that the soil is not just soil it's a, it's a it's the home for a lot of little creatures that do their job when you're taking a vacation or you know or hibernating you know so these guys will do all the nutrient cycling uh for us you know in, instead of relying and fertilizing every year every year the same thing and locking things up in the soil when they're not being used you know like phosphorus um so i think the no-till is a is a great thing um the 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 thing i don't know much about is is the 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 same thing could serve to promote beneficial organisms but it could promote pathogens too so i don't know what kind of system those people have and i noticed or at least at this conference i told them that if they can avoid winter wheat as a cover crop i would suggest not to put winter wheat as a cover crop because and this is my opinion my experience when i seen winter wheat roots they asked me for condensation i see all kinds of other fungi in them and i call them dirty dirty roots they 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 host a lot of other fungi that are not mycorrhizal fungi especially um uh, so non-beneficial non-beneficial yeah, yeah they just i just don't like them parasitic yeah a lot of, i see a lot of olpidium like olpidiums that. and alomyces you know all this fungi that have a, a part of their cycle is, is water they have they have motile spores they have so spores they're more related to animals um some some of their cycle their spores have flagella so they swim in the water and so they they colonize their roots heavily and so basically when you're done with the winter wheat that those roots are sort of like a fresh pathogens alive you know that you're keeping them going and i said if you can avoid winter wheat uh do something you know i don't know clover or or flax if you can um, some other plant not brassicas you know no no cannolis no mustard family uh, because those do not host what about, manure, what about a manure blend with the beans and you know field peas and all that stuff well that sounds good you know you, you bring in nitrogen so because yeah, um, i've got no-till grow beds but oh i'm sorry steve but i've got a couple i've been it's kind of neat that this rolled around in the no-till because i tried it off a video i saw on youtube through or three years ago and it's kind of almost like your bed is almost like a compost every year so you can just keep you know you can work it still a little bit and amend it a little bit but you got a nice bed there every year but i'm sorry steve go ahead buddy i was um i lost my train of thought Okay. I, I I was bringing it up to just talk about the time of colonization, you know, and that essentially, unless you have a, a no-till system, <clears throat> um, you don't, you shouldn't even mess around with mycorrhizae. Oh, is is I, that what I'm understanding correctly, Efren? 
Um, not necessarily. You know, I mean, I think the, the, the no-till in this case, even though it was not to promote mycorrhizal, you're doing it indirectly, you know, if your mycorrhizal plants are host for fungi, mycorrhizal fungi. So, so I guess the- I guess in a situation where we're we're using uh you know we're putting plants in a eight to ten week twelve week cycle, you know we're planting them in a soil base you know that's in there for a very limited time two months three months tops, uh, is is there benefit to buying and and adding that to our our regimen, in given the the limited time frame? Um, well, yes. I mean, if there's no other choice. And, and I would suggest um, to put the inocula in the fridge for at least, you know, at least two weeks. It could be a month. It could be the whole time. Because the spores are chlamydospores. They're resistance spores. And so they're basically survival spores. Once they're produced, thick walls, so they just stay in the ground. You know, they don't germinate right away and so the the cold temperature kind of scarifies them you know breaks dormancy you know what happened what happened during the winter in the plant community especially in the boreal zones naturally they all mycorrhizal species they're in the soil freezes but that doesn't kill them and they so, just go dormant. Eh? They, yeah, go they dormant. just go dormant. And they come to spring, and so they went through a cold period naturally. And then spring comes, new root growth, fungi will wake up. And so there's, you use that concept to do it to your commercial inocula. Uh, on that note, what what would be good companion plants to plant with cannabis to attract beneficial mycorrhizae? I know purslane and certain grasses have pretty deep and extensive ones. I know I think it was your talk that about grasses having up to sixteen different type of micro associated mycorrhizae. I think it was. Um, do you want to talk a little bit on on maybe some plants that might be good and you know how some of them there isn't much science behind? Or? As I say, you guys want all the secrets. <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> Let me send you a PayPal account. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually building a network where you could have your own channel to get your to do that PayPal and have the whole world sending you money through your PayPal. I'm working on it. Here's the here's the thing. Um, so the companion plant, based on the concept. Um, any composite, you know, any 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 plant on the Asteraceae family will be good. Now, that's just based on the mycorrhizal companionship. But I don't know what, and, and it, this can be tested. I don't know if there's competition for nutrients that may affect your cannabis plant. I don't know. See, that was my thought when that question was being asked is about in the root zones being too invasive and robbing the roots of the cannabis plant. That's what I was thinking, too, could possibly happen. Yeah, because, you know, maybe it's not, and I'm just 
thinking out loud, uh, maybe it's not necessary to put a companion plant. Maybe, gosh, you guys. I've got an idea. I'll throw it out, and then you can nod if it's the right thing. You <laughs> play it, okay? I was thinking, go ahead and take your big giant, you know, like a bale, your bale of Pro Mix, and inoculate it. Be pre-grow, like be proactive, and 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 grow your, you know, put your fungi in there and, and have it growing for three months while you're growing your grow, and then use that for your medium next time. Look, he's nodding. See? Okay, sh he's okay nodding. shut that guy off. Put the camera off. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> there you go. Delete him from the panel. <laughs> he knows too much. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. We, I mean, that's basically the no-till idea. You right, know? so like what, right. what we're doing in my garden is it's I'm inoculated. And yeah, so when I when I start my my new clones, I clone off my mother plants in an aeroponic cloner, and then I put them in a four inch a mix, and I inoculate them with the same strain. This is where we're, we're heading towards, right? With the same strain that is in my beds, and then uh, when I put my plants then in the beds, they're they're already working on the same communication line in quotation. You know they're reading the same they're reading the same language is that the right the right deal yeah um basically what you're doing is to get the mycorrhizal wake up and get active and then you can top the plants you know chop them and you can probably leave leave the root system or you know kind of a smash them up or whatever so increase the colony sources um, and then you plant your crop whatever crop you want to do and so when you plant them you're basically putting them on a very friendly environment that is all ready to go and so no, go ahead. As, the, the thing is that unless if you check that plants that you put before you your fancy crop colonize and, and then you check for the spores numbers and so on and then you have data and facts that this it actually work then you put your fancy crop and then you let it grow and then you check for colonization again you have data that says what i did it did work if you don't do any of those checks you're only assuming. I mean, that's basically it. Sure. I have when to say something in the in the grow that I've done where I just took, I used the same, and this is a, in a cloth pot, five gallon cloth pot grow. I took my clones and I put them in the, into the last grow, same, same medium. I just basically, I pull once it dry, I let it dry out. I snap off and kind of snap the root ball around and leave all the other roots except for the actual stem and the right there at the root ball at the beginning. And then I, 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 I excavated it to be able to repot my plant, which I, and I go from one gallon nursery pots into the five gallon and I put them in there and guys, I'm going to tell you something right now. The hybrid, crazy, vigorous growth that I'm getting. I mean, it's just, it, there's shoots, they're coming out everywhere. It's to the point where I, you know, we've we've been 
taking and pruning off the bottom of our plants and letting all the energy go to the top. I've got so much growth up and down the stems. I don't want to cut anything off. I think I might be doing this, but I'm going to tell you this. Uh, I also something else about like we were talking, uh, it was mentioned about holding the nutrients and all. What I found is that this is something that y'all might want to keep in mind if you're going to try what we're talking about and, and reusing your, uh, your, your pro mix or your mycorrhiza, your, your grow beds medium and all over and over uh, like this with the, with the fungi uh, still active and, and cultured in there. But I, I think that you need to understand that it does hold nutrients. So peace. So, so it does hold nutrients. Um, and so when you first go in there, you don't need to be giving it a bunch of nutrients either. My plants got super dark green. Um, you know, really, and I said, right, and I've got a couple spots. And I said, right away, I said, uh, we need to watch out. And, and you know, there's so much in this, in this uh, medium or substrate or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, so far that I, I decided to go with water and my plants just went crazy. And they didn't stretch or well, of course, uh, I went to veg period, photo period, but they didn't stretch a whole lot. They just went nuts. Uh, every, there were shoots coming out of every node everywhere. And they just, I mean, it just stacked up, you know, half an inch to an inch apart. You know. I, have a, I have a question on that note. So is there any difference between doing straight no-till and then taking your soil from, so if you're, say if you're doing pots, taking that soil that from the pots and say composting them in between runs for, three to six months and then doing that again, does that also maintain the mycorrhizal uh, spores and fungi and, and um, mycorrhizae uh, or does that, or, and mycelium or, you know, does that uh, not trans transfer over uh, and is it better to do one than the other? Is there a big difference? I have no idea, but I would think it would be okay. Um, I think it depends on the, co the compost concentration. Um, and it's just a feeling, you know, scientists should not have a feeling, you know, <laughs> should be objective. Um, but, you know, people have asked me, can you put the spores or I want to make a product with compost tea? I said, oh man, I, it's just the thought of having spores. You know they're big spores, and put in the compost tea to make a product. In thinking, all right, I'm gonna have compost tea and mycorrhizal spores. Man, that compost tea is loaded with bacteria, and mycorrhizal spores. They are vascular fungal. You know the glomus type. They're big, and they're basically a big balloon full of nutrients. And so you put bacteria and spores together that seems like a, a party for like free pizza you know like wow look at all this food and i seen bacteria making holes through the cell wall you know trying to get to those oils those nutrients and so i don't know I, it's something to be tested to see if they actually you know microsofungal spores work with compost tea now, so if you have a high compost substrate, it's a similar thing, but less liquid, obviously. But I don't know how long would this, the spores can, I don't know if the spores can take such a heavy uh, bacterial substrate for that long. 
But again, I'm just trying to compare to soil. Well, soil is loaded with bacteria too. So it's just a, a feeling that I'm guessing the compost tea is a lot higher uh, bacteria numbers than than soil. That's just, you know, I'm, I don't know. I've, I've also heard that overdosing your trichoderma can also uh, heavily impact your fungi. Is that true? Uh, yeah, trichoderma is another beast. You know, trichoderma is a big decomposer fungus. And so, I, I don't know. I mean, people try, people in the commercial business try to give you all kinds of combinations and cocktails, you know. Uh, you got trichodermas, bacterias, and this and that. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they actually test how viable those things are, you know, when they put together after six months in a package. That's after what year, I was thinking about, shelf life. Year, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, not, ju not just shelf life, but what is... I mean, the, the fact that the reaction continues to grow inside a bottle, that's what I meant, actually. Yeah, especially if they're in liquid. Liquid form, to me, is kind of active. And the powder yeah. form, I would think that things are still, you know, sit yeah. still. But that doesn't mean that the bacteria cannot be on top of the surface of the spore. I don't know what they would do in a dry form. Did they do anything? Are they active or just waiting, you know, to get in? I don't know. Hmm. Very interesting. It's, it's, yes. it's a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, it, my question to those companies that sell those cocktails is those basic questions. You know, what are the, what is, what does it happen on the package? You know, I think some of that. Oh. Is, is this, what kind of activity happens? You know, does the bacteria does anything to it, or just Latin? You know, they're just waiting. Um, I don't know. Did they test viability? How often did they test it? Every month? I think sometimes it's, it's a matter of marketing. One company comes out with something like that. So every other company that because they're a nutrient, commercial nutrient business, or when I'm out with something, I mean, well, no, we don't want to man. We don't want to mention any of the evil That's nutrient good. companies out there. But uh, Go ahead, Steve. I, I just wanted to make that okay. comment. I think some of what, what Dr. There, Efron was saying was due with the fact that they just make a product to sell it, whether yep. they test it or, you know. Is there, a, is there a certain, um, anything that people can add to feed their uh, mycorrhizae more? I know people, some people recommend, uh, you know, uh, molasses or other certain things to try and encourage growth. Is there anything that uh, well, comes to mind on that regard? I'm not sure how that worked because Remember, mycorrhizal fungi are mycorrhizal fungi. They're not saprophytic. At least that's what we know. Um, so trying to feed a mycorrhizal fungus with, with uh, uh, sugars already made, that means that the mycorrhizal fungus has some saprophytic capabilities, which I wouldn't be surprised because um, they can grow in vitro for a little bit of a period and then they connect to the roots in vitro, you know, because that's where they actually, you know, want to get their nutrients. But 
um, I seen mycorrhizofungal spores and colonization on the bottom leaves of turf, you know? And so what are they doing? They're supposed to be in the roots, not on the little leaves. You know, and I asked that question to other colleagues. I said, well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing. I never seen that before. I said, I seen them. I seen them a few days ago. You know, you have turf, turf colonization. Obviously you're looking for roots, but sometimes you get the little piece of the bottom of the, of the, uh, the bottom leaves of the turf, you know, Bermuda, you know, very tiny leaf. And you see the, the fungal colonizing inside of the leaf. I said, these guys are breaking all the rules. And so, um, there's a lot of things we, we, we take for, for granted or that we think we know everything, but the more we look at things under the microscope or below ground, you know, we, we keep finding other stuff, you know. I don't know if you guys have microscope, but man, once you start seeing things at a very, you know, uh, under the 40, 40X or 100X, the whole world changes, you know. Um, and I'm just going to throw this in, and I don't know how long we're going to be talking. Uh, um, I need my cookies and milk for it to go to bed. Um, <laughs> oh, no, you can, you can wrap, we'll uh, wrap it up. After uh, this. Uh, one thing, and, and this, this, uh, this, I say this to Leighton, uh, this blows him away. <laughs> I said, look, Leighton, the spores, the microsofungal spores, and this is not new, and this is not my discovery. Um, inside of mycorrhizofungal spores, you know, mycorrhizofungal spores have like 40 microns, it's like a balloon, 40 microns to 100 microns, 120 microns, full of oils and stuff. But there's endosymbiotic bacteria inside the spores that who knows what they're doing. Does that mean we, sorry to interrupt, does that mean we can't see them with well, no, they have they have to have a special staining, you know, a higher magnification because all you see on this kind of scopes, it's just little things wiggling, you know. That's as far as we're gonna see. So you gotta have a higher magnification, you know. <laughs> uh, but the question is, what is what they're doing there? Are there? They're they're probably transferred from the tube from the hyphal, because microsofungal spores, they are muscular ones, don't have septa. So in theory, all the organelles and oils and nuclei are migrating back and you know, back and forth. They they potentially they ha they have no septa, so they're not contained. The cy the cytoplasm is flowing. And so when the spores are formed outside or inside the root, you know, the hyphae swells up and makes the spore. It's just basically an extension of the hyphae, you know, starting to swell up. The, the, chem the chemistry of the cell wall changes, make it thicker. And then this bacteria goes inside, they get inside. And if they're formed outside, well, the hyphae goes outside and this, this bacteria goes inside where the spore is. 
what is what they do? What what could do, could they be doing? Um, trigger germination is one possibility. Um, cycling some of these nutrients that are inside. Um, the spores is like a reserve of glycogen and, and sugars that are needed for energy when the fungal hyphae is going to germinate. It's sort of like the store, the, the energy is stored there. And so when the spore germinates and creates new individual, the energy is coming from what's inside the spore. Once the fungal hyphae grows and grows, and if that fungal hyphae is, is not doing any saprophytically, it needs to connect to the root because they need the energy from the root. If it doesn't find a root, it's gonna die. And so it's sort of like you got one shot. If you're gonna germinate, you better go and find a root because if you don't find it, you're done, buddy. You cannot you cannot survive saprophytically for a very long time. It's very likely. And so that's why I say if you check root colonization and find the structures inside the roots and determine a colonization level or just the presence, there's a lot of successes that have to happen for that fungus to be inside the root. And that's why we're using mycorrhizal colonization as a way of a sign of healthy soil. I and wanted to ask something earlier. Do, you know, when you were at the very beginning of the show, and I wanted to listen to you before I try to interrupt and ask a question, but you kind of hit right back around on it. So you would consider my mycorrhizae fung fungi is synergistic. It brings well, we, all these different well we we are well we consider them mutualistic but synergistic okay is very like very likely that they can you know here's here's the question back to the joshua experiment yeah uh, if we combine the five species we don't know if those five species do something they cannot do independently If the, if the five species work and colonize, unfortunately, we don't know which one is colonized because once you look at inside, they're all gonna be looking the same way. And so we don't know which species is the one actually growing, but those species might be doing something together, you know, um, or they're doing something together with bacteria or they're doing something, you know, there's so many arrows. Remember the diagram? There's so many arrows that they could be interacting with each other. But that's what we, made me think of the synergy because you were saying that it, it was you didn't sell you didn't sell mycorrhizae. It was yeah, a fungal no. and that brought everything together to work together. And that's what yeah. I thought. Of. Yeah, so it's very likely that those synergistic, you know, because below ground ecosystem or pretty much in the ecosystem, we're not alone, you know. And as all as all community, as all population, is everybody's doing something. You know, they're all everybody's trying to survive. And when it comes to cannabis, it's a simple environment, and it's a disturbed environment. 
because that's not substrate that it was formed for millions of years. It's a substrate that you made a week before or a month before. So that's not, doesn't have any structure. Everything is artificial. And so anything that you put in there, it's in a chaotic mode because that's not how they live in nature. And so bacteria and fungi and anything you put in there, they're all in survival mode, you know, let's, let's eat, let's grow and eat and reproduce because who knows what these guys are doing up there. You know, we keep getting water and we keep getting nutrients and, and not protozoar coming and what the hell, you know, I don't know where these guys come from, you know, <laughs> and everybody's on a survival mode. Um, and, and so, that's another way to look at it. Most of the urban landscapes and most of the towns are disturbed environments. Unless you go to some pristine forest, you know, everything is in a chaos, chaos mode. Is it, um, is it true that, and I know that I've had, we've had one or two other people tell us this before, that there's only one type of mycorrhizae that associates with cannabis. Uh, I forget what the first name is, Irregularis, or is yeah. that not true? Because I know you're uh, the, the no, person that no. Yeah, um, it's a, it's a mycorrhizae fungal species, Rhizophagus Irregularis. It used to be called Glomus, uh, but there's also Glomus interradices. Um, and so on and so on. You know, as I say, you know, what, what uh, Josh and Leighton are doing is hopefully we'll pin down if the strains from this particular producer actually do some benefit. We know they colonize or they will colonize, but that's about it. We don't know if they actually do any benefit unless we measure something. And what are we going to measure? Height, flower numbers, stem diameter, a number of, I don't know what you guys measure. Uh, well, THC and THC. THC levels, that would be the very fine because. Yield. Because, yeah, I mean, I think the THC will be something that will be extremely important for CBDs because imagine if you find a strain compared to the control that can produce high THC levels versus the control. Wouldn't that be the, the, one of the best goals you want to find? Exactly. And, and a stick with that? Yeah, I mean, obviously that's, I mean, that's the goal. I, I, I was wanting to go back to the a question before that Steve was asking. And I think you corrected me on and trying to make sure I understand it correctly. So like when we, you know, there, there's a practice of adding like barley or um, different products like that to increase or, or even oatmeal to increase the, the myocarrhizae in quotes. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it's the case because, again, those will be indirect nutrients for whatever microbes are breaking down these compounds that eventually will be taken by the plant. The mycorrhizal fungus is going to feed on 
basic stuff, phosphorus, some, some nitrogen, and so on, micronutrients. But the energy source is going to come from the plant. And so... Oh. The, 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 thing the is, metabolism, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the oh. energy is coming from the roots, and so whatever you're feeding on the substrate is to feed the bacteria, not the mycorrhiza fungi or a decomposer fungus. They'll break down nutrients, so the nutrients will be available for the plants. So, so that when I apply, you know, like so, some of those things to my no-till bed that has you know a layer of straw on it and i see a, a fungal web that's the composer fungi that is not mycorrhizae nope i can tell you 100 percent. that's that was my point that i was trying to drive home and i and i'm guilty yeah. you can look on my instagram of me bragging about my mycorrhizae <laughs> you can see so like i'm just trying to call that out <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome yeah. to solve something like that. Those are fungi do serve the purpose of breaking down nutrients for the plants. Yeah, I can tell Truth, you, my, but that's not mycorrhizae. You know that that was my point. Is that we yeah, mycorrhizae fungi, see it, right? Yeah, mycorrhizae fungi are invisible unless you stain them. You know. Uh, Say that in, like in, three more times. I mean, invisible. So you're saying if you can actually see the mycelium okay. growing, that it's most likely a decomposer? Very likely. Because, okay, let, I'll take it back. You know, I'm trying to, I'm thinking mycologists might be listening to me. Okay, here, I'll do it again. So if you see white treads on your substrate, it's, it's, a, it's a bundle of fungal hyphae making mycelia, right? These threads are, I can assure you, 99.9% .9 are decomposer fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi will not make visible mycelia in the substrate. It's so small that you need to see it under the compound scope. And that's the reason why we stain we clear and stain the roots to actually see the fungal hyphae because it's almost impossible to see them especially when they're substrate now when i when i extract commercial inocula and the commercial inocula most of the whole hyphae are fragmented and i extract them along with the spores i can see fungal hyphae but it's because i extracted it from the substrate, which is clay and other stuff. And I can see, you know, threads of hyphae and it's just like fine fibers. But if I put a drop, of, a few drops of stain on that liquid, the hyphae is stained immediately and then I can see it. And then I can quantify it, you know, but I can only do that for commercial inocula because I know that the hyphae are microisophonal hyphae. But if they send me substrate with organic matter and a bunch of junk and stuff, you get all kinds of decomposer hyphae, you get brown hyphae, which is not microisophonal hyphae, and get other stuff. And so, and even a little pathogens, you know, they're growing in there. So I said, I can't, I can't, distinguish mycorrhizal fungi from, from uh, decomposer fungi. This is too messy. Uh, 
so I can't tell you anything about. But the spores are stand out, and so we go from there. Well, you've opened up a few new uh, laboratories here today because we'll all be experimenting with some of the stuff. <laughs> I'm sure we'll keep in touch. Just run, just, just run good. Just run first. Write down the question that you want to answer, and that's basically a an hypothesis. Hypothesis is you set it up and you say, "I'm going. I'm going to apply this. Is going to do this." The alternative hypothesis is not going to do that. It's a yes or no. <laughs> so it fails or it succeeds. Yeah, it's a yes or no. And then you set enough replicates. You set everything as the, the same thing for everybody except the treatment. After that, um, you measure, you got to measure a parameter that is going to give you the answer that you're asking, that you're looking for. Because otherwise, you know, you, you spend three or four months and then you don't know what you're gonna measure. <laughs> like, I think we, you know, we've come to measure, like I said, uh, and this, I just got this, you know, because of the measurements that we've done with LED lighting, that it came down to THC, CBD levels and yield. Total, well, it comes down to total cannabinoids, period. And, and then you all have total, total cannabinoids, and, total, total and, cannabinoids also, and terpenes. Yep. Also, which is important to me, is uh, how strong it is to uh, to combat you know pest and disease too. You know how you know how resistant it is to pest and disease. Now, That'd one thing when you excuse me, one thing you you say about lightning, and I don't know if this is possible, but sometimes if you do lightning or the lighting thing. LED. If you if you move the plants around, yeah, frequently, that's the best thing because if you just right. let them sit, then right. you get the edge effect and blah blah yep. blah. Just as long as you say it, so people know that you're gonna try something. Says so, you know, move your plants around frequently, uh, so there's no edge effect. Right, get different light angles and all yeah, for it. Yeah, right. and all different parts of the plants get light and all. Yeah. In fact, turn them, turn them a quarter to a half a turn every time you water or feed them every two or three days. Now, do you guys measure THC levels so every time you grow something? Yes, in um, California and <laughs> most legal states, you can send off between forty and sixty dollars. In most states now, you can have anything tested that you're growing. So we test pretty much everything, and that helps us. Uh, in fact, I did. I've done extensive testing for different lighting, uh, as far as different types of LEDs, different yeah. and, all, and all that, and. Um, I can tell you a whole lot about that, but yes, we, we do extensive testing every time. Uh, and for state, uh, anything we sell on a, to the state uh, or anything we sell legally in the state, we have to have uh, state testing that gives us all of that data. But uh, Steve, honestly, Steve, you've probably done more like research and comparison data than most folks. Like yes. the testing, this testing most folks are doing is just like requirement of uh, to, to pass fail or, or you know whatever the THC CBD ratios are it's very simple testing yeah yeah so in fact some of the stuff that we've learned in aquaponics is that uh, aquaponics has higher THCV and CBD levels uh, on average compared to soil controls but um, I know uh, Dr. Efron's trying to get going so uh, thanks uh, I know you want to want to get running so uh, I mean, somebody yeah. has a, a question before oh sure anybody, yeah, anybody from have? chat 
Anybody have any other questions for uh, Dr. Efron? Let me scroll up here and see if there's any from earlier. Well, while you're looking, I want to say, Dr. Efron, thank you so much. I wish I would have had an opportunity to take your class, but I'm yeah. on the East Coast and I thoroughly enjoyed I could I was riveted to your conversation in style where, where, and sense of humor. I where, where's, the East, where's the East Coast? Where in the East Coast? I live in, I live I live in the hellhole swamp. In South <laughs> Carolina. South in the Carolina. south and uh less and like we like to say is less than legal land but i but i live in the swamp and i've got all kinds of you you can't stop things from growing here oh, so i've got all kinds of biological sometimes yeah huh? I, I, I feel like putting my boots on for the copperheads already just thinking about it oh no 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 that's what we got dogs for they you know they run through there and run them. <laughs> uh, no there's not a lot of copperheads you know that's you know snakes you know snakes are uh they don't want to mess with you you know and, and most people don't know it but uh a snake we'll do this and then we'll get back to steve finishing the show but uh <laughs> the well no but most people don't know this you run across a rattlesnake it can only strike you about the barely over half the length of its body so if it's a six foot snake and you're four feet away you get a four foot snake <laughs> yeah it is I, true no it's I, not I true through. i've I've bred over 500 venomous snakes. That's not true. I, 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 I've been bitten by two different species of venomous snakes. That's not true. Well, there's some snakes, but in general, when you run across rattlesnakes and copperheads and stuff like no, that, three, you can three only, quarters, they can only no, no, strike on. you. Three quarters of the body. Like, All right, well, yeah. see, you want to err on. Anyways. I don't know. I've, I I can tell you firsthand. I used to do it. It was highly venomous. That's one I open. I open a new. Yeah. Well, I, I worked with the forester I, and, and cleared roads in the in the swamp. So, you know, I, I, I open a new can of snakes, right? But, but but yeah. But see, I'm I'm sure Steve's right too. That let's just leave it at that. We're you know he's right too. <laughs> we had a we had a guy yeah, so much love from brother. New Zealand. Uh, you have a, a big fan in New Zealand. Any other question? Uh, we don't have any other questions from chat. Does anyone from the panel have any other questions? No, I'm, well, I'm, not I'm, I'm, I can think of. Uh, do you want to tell people how to find you and um, how to find your company? <laughs> and uh, I have your information also in the in the description of the of the video yeah, as well. Yeah, microroots m y c o r o o t s uh, dot microroots at, uh, at comcast dot net or microroots dot com. Um, it comes out quickly. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 consulting. I'm all over the place. I say I'm I'm going to be traveling quite a bit. Uh, and uh, um, New York and can I add in like uh, if if you're like on the commercial level and you uh, want to buy legitimate mycorrhizae spores, um, that we could folks can contact you um, in order to actually, source that. Yeah, actually, like, I know you don't grow them, but... Yeah. yeah, actually, I don't I don't sell products. You don't um, sell products, but, I, like, you know, in, in, I, I guess in my case, I, 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 I understood that, that like, you, you tested it before, and you... you yeah, I, yeah, um, you, you know, commercially, I'm not supposed to, you know, recommend, but, you know... <laughs> you know publicly um so don't get in trouble okay. yeah so because you know i you know most companies they 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 do you know pretty good stuff you know um but you know i just like anybody when you go to the supermarket 
you have like five different kinds of milk to choose from and you go for the one that you like and so right but maybe if folks wanted to get real serious they could uh send their product that they're going to purchase to oh yeah 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 oh yeah 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 before they use it and you could say hey this is legit and this is full of spores yeah gotcha gotcha usually um a lot of the a lot of the assessments are obviously are confidential because you know i don't you know you will not believe the history of this industry. A lot of times people want to talk negatively about other companies. And so they says, okay, uh, I'm gonna send you a product. And and then they get pissed off at that company. They want their money back and da 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 da. And then I get in the middle of it. Like, uh, uh, so, it, I'm here to support the industry. I'm here to support the clients that want to use them, and um, and so I'm I'm a friendly guy, and I'm not here to cause any problems. Um, the on hard feelings. We yeah, well, we understand that, Doctor Efron, um, uh, because Steve's the same way. Steve always buys the product. He never lets anybody give him the product. So then, when he reviews the product, he can do it. With a with and hold his head high because he bought it. He didn't get it given to him by the company, so therefore yeah. his view is. But in your case, I can still understand. You have to deal with all these different labs and, and oh gosh, and, uh, yeah. and, and the thing and is, cool. as yeah. far as I know, um, there's a couple other labs that they do some assessments, but I I never been to those labs i don't know them personally but i know there's a couple other labs um but i mean i want men orchestra i don't have technicians i do the whole thing myself um recently i've been overwhelming with some 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 stuff so i'm getting my my son to help me here and uh and you know to, to do some of the technical stuff but um but you know, I'm, I like to take care of the whole thing myself. You know, it's, that's why I stand by what I do. And I, you know, privately, you can, you know, ask me, you know, what do you think of this product? But you know, there's always want to make sure off the record or confidential, blah blah. You know, the whole thing. You know, just to make make sure nobody gets hurt. You know, I'm not here to put down any company. Um, but yeah, I test products and uh, just by doing the counts, make sure things are there. Sometimes there's more than what they say. Sometimes they're low, lower what they say, uh, at least best on my methodology. And, and, um, and roots, like I, I guess I wasn't trying to like talk about dog and a product, just yeah. about the like. And, and the you roots. Can help you, folks, you can yeah, help exactly. folks figure that out. That's part of what you do. Yeah, exactly. You know, you put your product, you you let them grow for at least three months if if you can, and then we can check the roots and to see if they actually work or not. Because if you apply something, you assume it's working, and it's not working, maybe you want to change product or um, or don't use it at all. <laughs> oh, perfect! Great job, Josh. You're bringing it around to what that's what you meant. I understand. Yeah. So, so that's what your business is: is that you will yeah. test. Yeah, I do it roots assessments. Yes, that's okay. See, I don't think we really I, hit that. That's what I was trying enough. to hit at. Like, oh uh, yeah, thank you, Josh. Yeah, you do root you test the roots, 
You yeah, have to test you the product it. before you apply it and tell you if it actually has the spores. Yeah, he could help you all along the process and, and of, of working with whatever product. And I wasn't yeah. asking him to call out okay any you, product. Josh. I was just trying to clarify that that's what you do is you and that and analysis. Yeah, thank well, you. Well, the Josh. other side is you apply the product and send the roots to you. Yes. and you yes. look at the roots. That, yeah, thank you, Josh. After uh, you've used the product. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's what I do. Let's call microbial assessments based on the roots. You know, either from the native communities or something that you're growing that you apply. So you send me a handful of roots and they have to be from that individual that you're testing and then we clear them and I and uh, I uh, stain them and look under the scope and tell you percentage colonization and then you can decide you know did my product work or not or whatever i'm doing is working because if you don't find anything if i don't find anything on those samples that product is definitely not working it's just the bottom line then we got to the root of how to get your business there's no i mean that's that's why we use colonization as a sign of a healthy soil and it takes 90 days for colonization. That's what I was yeah. asking very specific questions about the way we grow. Because see, so see, and that's, I and that's to my say something about that 90 day thing. See, my plants are never done in 90 days. So if I started doing this at the beginning of my grows, my grows take 120 days generally. Well, you know, well, I mean, even 20, 120 days, even better. Uh, but but that's 90 years. That, I, I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean you can you you can do the assessment at ninety days, and usually you can do it at one twenty when you're done. So it it, it will be fine, and it's it's a it's a range time. But there's some species that can. That some people test it after eight weeks. You know, like after sixty days. Oh, so but that's all you're saying time. is that the testing is invaluable up until ninety days. Yeah, because see, well, some some oh, some, okay. some some colleagues, some colleagues, some paper says, yeah, we did the assessment after eight weeks. To me personally, it's just the beginning. To me, that doesn't mean that some strains can work a lot e I mean, a lot earlier than others. But I mean, you can test in every month if you want to, you know. But obviously, it's going to be budget, and you don't want to damage your plans and so on. So you know. Mm -hmm. I, I rather I rather wait, you know, three months at least. Commercial people even wait four months, and, and then do assessment to see how their production came up. You know, so you you can choose between ninety days and one hundred twenty days if possible. But you know, you can have a crop that is growing, you know, for six months, and you can assess them at the end of the year to at the end of the crop. That's fine too. Right. Right. Because yeah, it doesn't have to be cannabis all the time, but we yeah, did no, no, it's it's just it's just snap, it's just the, the colonization. Pretty much in any data, any lab, any lab data is a snapshot of in space and time of what you're trying to measure. If you do it a week before or a week later, you may have different numbers. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. So I mean. So. so real quickly, uh, I thought of a question. Is there anything that people can be doing to try and capture their local native mycorrhizal fungi? <laughs> we touched on that earlier. Uh -huh. <laughs> you want to go back to the secrets, huh? 
Right. <laughs> well, see, that's uh, no. I'm not going to hijack. Uh, <laughs> I had a yeah, but I was going to say. Well, I, I better say because it's funny. I'll let you address that. You know, but I was just funny because when you were saying, you know, I, you were about secrets and and I knew better than to ask you. Well, how do you dye the uh, roots so, so you could see it? And then, uh, then yeah. You, Oh, if it's, you want um, to tell us a secret, then I'm. Oh sorry. yeah, oh, that, that, yeah, that's not that's not a secret. You know, the, we use uh, tripum blue. I use tripum blue, but they're all consistent. You can use uh, aniline blue. I mean, they're all, you know, nasty chemicals. Um, some at some point, somebody in Canada try a blank ink. You know, regular ink, pelican ink. They try all kinds of inks. And they okay. do. They did. They didn't mix it with vinegar, and uh, so they're trying to do some kind of a less carcinogenic. So it's still experimental too. No, I mean it, it works, but it doesn't. The stain is kind of a. You use it one time, and it's pretty much done. And when I use tripum blue, yeah. as long as you use gloves and you know air it, uh, that's not an issue. I've been doing that for thirty years. Um, that you clear them with KOH, this potassium hydroxide, at 10%. You know, you can get that on Amazon. Uh, you clear the roots, and then you put an yeah. yeah, and then you and then you put a you you dump them. You, you clear them for 24 hours. You know, room temperature, and then you dump the KOH. You put uh, uh, acid solution, one percent of hydrochloric acid. You can replace it with vinegar. It doesn't matter. It's just an acid. Um, for 30 minutes, you dump the acid, and then you put the solution of the stain, which is tripum blue and lactoglycerol, as lactic acid, glycerol, and water, one part each. And and that, and then you put half a gram of the tripum blue. The tripum blue is is very potent, so half a 0.5 grams is 500 milligrams. So if you mix that at at a one liter of this solution of water, lactoglycerol, I mean, water, lactic acid, and glycerol, you make it at a 0.05%. And so that solution can be re can be reused, you know, you use it and use it. And it only takes, you know, uh, a few hours, you know, in a water bath. You put those roots in the vial, in a little seed vial, you know, so they're contained. And you can do a bunch at a time. And then after that, you dump you 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 dump the uh, the stain, and then you just add water, and your roots are ready to look at under the scope. Wow! Thank you. That's awesome. I mean that. I mean that method. I mean once you send me roots, I send you the method back. You know, just I can oh, tell yeah. you what the method I use. Right. So so now and, back to the secrets. I I thought that Brain Grow asked you the same question, but was that a different question than you were asked earlier? As far as the uh, I, no, I, I cut out a couple of times, so I may have missed it, and I apologize if I asked the same question twice. <laughs> well, we talked about how to find the saltiest um, in the show about, you know, go to a place that you'd, you'd, want, a, you'd want a fungi that would okay, visit. gotcha. Okay, I was paying attention there. I was just, I don't know, it's been a yeah, pretty you long go to the, uh, Tolerant species, you go to the desert, you know, you go to, uh, you know, whatever feature you're trying right, right, to right, select, right. you go to where it's happening naturally. You know, 
and then so hopefully... you dig up so you dig up according to doctor you dig up the plants that you find that live on the the first plants that live it's on the edge of the salty area colonized. to be salt resistant yeah it's either colonized first yeah, yeah um, and then send them to him the roots and he'll tell you if they if they've got yeah and then that soil is very likely the habitat for this type of fungi and then from there you start you know isolating them you know it takes it takes a few hocus pocus <laughs> and then you well, i can see that you need your cookies and milk i think i, I yep. you know i think we should let you <laughs> yeah. you're, uh, you're, you're you know, need, somebody needs to wind you up or, you know or something you know, yeah, i think i think steve is getting cold now he's wearing a jacket <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were awesome though. I'll tell you what, I was riveted to your, your explanation of things tonight, and I understood most of it too. So that was really cool. You know? Well, this is this is uh, Steven's idea because uh, he wants to warm up for the conference in Humble. And well, Steve's uh, awesome, man. He gets all you great guys to come and uh, share your knowledge with us, and we, you know, we badger you for a while I and have fun. My, I think my talk is on Friday. Yes, sir. The sixteen. The 16. Oh, no, 16. next. The sixteen. In Redway, California, which is in the Humboldt County, I'll be flying in on Thursday, and unfortunately, I'm flying back Saturday. I'll see you Friday night then. <laughs> yeah, they tell me that there's only one traffic light. It's a small little area we're going to. I think we're all hanging out pretty close quarters, so uh, it'll be fun. Well, I tell you what, you and, guys uh, are really doing something. I I love listening to all of you guys, and and the, I I envy you so much that you're out there being able to we, go. To we got to have you out every week for one of these, dude. All right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, I say half an hour. I think I lasted two hours. Yeah. It's all your fault. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're thank awesome. You for, uh, thank you for your time, and we much appreciate right. it. Thanks again. All right, guys. Thank you, doctor. Now, how do I do it? Do I click and close? Oh, you just close. Yeah, just close your window. Thank you. All right, guys. Cheers. Stay Stay nice. Nice. Stay